0: And I want to invite the rest of you to your turn there. I'll just uh, take a second to thank Dan Iverson for filling in. Uh, Last Sunday, Kathy and I got a last weekend away. Um, Never been to Ocean City, Maryland before, but wanted uh, a weekend on the beach. Sort of a culmination. um, My oldest daughter's birthday is August 12th. Our anniversary is August 15th. And then Kathy's birthday is August 19th. So we were we were on the beach celebrating our 31st anniversary a couple of days late. Um, and weirdly, I still am trying to like wrap my head around, but celebrating her 31st birthday also and how those work, I don't know. Um, but it was just a great weekend. And we did lots of fun stuff. Hey, uh, so as we come into Hebrews, you know, I know some of you have been with us for a while and you understand the flow of, of the, the author's argument, just pointing to how, look, anything that you take in Old Testament, you know, religion, the the sacrifices, the priests, the the sanctuary, all of those forms, all those structures, uh, they have a very, very good purpose, but we ought not to confuse uh, the symbol with the reality. And so the author is sort of continuing that conversation here in chapter 10, most specifically now having to do with the the sacrifices and the the gifts that were made on the altar. Uh, He's going to quote from Psalm 40 uh, in in these verses as well. So uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Would you please stand in honor of God's word? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Lord, we give you thanks for the, the body of Jesus Christ, through which we have been sanctified, justified, saved once and for all. We pray that we would understand in, in greater depth, with greater worship, uh, the reality of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> um, so there's a lot we could we could. Pull out of these verses, but I want to focus in verse 1 on, on the shadow of the, the good things to come. I, I don't want you to miss, not only that there's a, a shadow going on here, but, but they're, they're, it's pointing to the good things uh, that are to come. And, and really the shadow that's focused on here is the shadow of the sacrifices and the offerings that you see in verse 5, this beginning of uh, the passage in Psalm 40 that's quoted. So, so the shadow of the good things to come, uh, that shadow are the sacrifices and the offerings. The good things that are to come really come through the body of Jesus Christ that you see all the way down there in verse 10. Uh, his body is the promise. His body is the reality. His body is the substance of the, the shadows. So let's start uh, Let's start with the shadow of, of good things, of real things, uh, to come, since the law has but a shadow of the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So good for us to hit the pause button right here and just talk about shadows. Um, we, we know a couple of things about shadows, right? Shadows are not the same thing as the object that they are shadowing, <laughs> uh, and that this is what we're talking about here Pick this really cool little shop light up so that it had something nice and bright. Uh, how many of you have enjoyed, enjoyed hand puppets, little shadow puppets, right? How, how am I doing? There's a hawk, right? Pretty cool. I worked hard on this, prepared well. Had to do some stretching too. But there's my hawk. Can I get some hawk noises? That's good stuff, yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. Wait. Some of you look worried. It's not a real hawk. You, you don't have to be scared. It's, nothing's going to swoop down and, and like, you know, grab your hair. Nothing's going like to drop a little love on you. It's not real. It's just a shadow, right? Right? It even sounds real, but it's not. It's a shadow. But what makes the shadow is real. So here's some more fun with shadows, right? Here's a real apple, and it makes it an apple shadow. And here's a banana, and a banana makes a banana-shaped shadow. Radical. I mean, that's worth the price of admission right there, right? Aren't you glad you came to church today? What are we talking about? We're talking about how shadows are not the same thing as the thing that they're depicting. That hawk is not real. It's just a shadow. But the apple that made the apple shadow is real. So so when when verse 1 is telling us that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, the law is not the same thing as the good things that are to come. The law is not going to um, make perfect those who draw near. The substance of the shadow will. And so, because we know that shadows are formed by things that are real, that tells us some ridiculously good news. Us perfect as we draw near to God. Did you know that? the law the 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 priesthood the sanctuary the temple the tabernacle the 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 offerings and the sacrifices those are the shadows of good things that are coming that might bring us into god's presence without spot you know wrinkle blemish any 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 stain but clean and beautiful, and you and I can be presented perfect before God because of the substance of the shadow. There's a story like from, I don't know, the Midwest, turn of the century, you know, when the, you know, when the circus would come to town on the train. I don't know, maybe you've, you, you've read a Little House on the Prairie book or something like that about when the, when the circus would come to town on the train, and everybody loses their mind because they're starved for entertainment. They've, you know, it's been years since they've seen a circus, but here comes the circus. And the little boy hears the train, hears all the excitement, all the commotion, runs home, asks, Dad, Dad, can I have a nickel to go see the circus? And I mean, this is turn of the century, dirt farming, poor Midwest family, and the father, like, this is a big sacrifice. He reaches into his pocket, gives his son a shiny nickel. It's the most money this little kid has ever held in his hand. And the father says, I love you, son. I want to bless you. Here's a nickel. Go enjoy the circus. And the kid bolts out of the house, runs as fast as he can, right down to Main Street where everybody's lining up. You know, it's a parade, right? Because the circus, the animals, the clowns, the the, the circus, you know, conductor, he's got a, they all have to leave the train, get off the train, and then they're going to march uh, through town to where they're going to set up the big top, you know, set up the tent. And this little boy's so excited. And, and he kind of dodges and weaves his way through the crowd. And he's standing right in the front of Main Street. And here comes the circus. Here come the clowns and they're juggling and they're they're doing cartwheels and they're doing what clowns do. And then here comes, you know, the, the, the guy who's leading the circus, the ringmaster, and here comes, you know, the animals, and, you know, you've got giraffes and camels, oh my gosh, and there's a lion, for goodness sake, and, the, and everybody's cheering, and they're having fun, and it's so exciting, and then finally, you know, the last clown, you know, finishes, and he's waving, and, you know, doing all, and having fun, and, and, and there goes the rest of the circus down Main Street, and turns the corner, and the little boy heads home, and he gets through the front door and the father says, why are you, why are you home so soon? What do you mean, why am I home so soon? You're supposed to go to the circus. I did go to the circus. What did you go to see? They went down the street and I saw the circus. And son, go back. <laughs> The circus is in the big top. All you saw was the prelude. All you saw was the preamble. You saw the parade before the real thing. That's just the shadow. That's just the the precursor. The substance is under the big top. And so, oh, oh, okay. That's what the law is. That's what the sacrifices, the offerings, and the priests, and the temple, and the tabernacle. That's all just the parade. The substance is to come. The good eight things are to come the good things that that we've been hearing about ever since chapter eight. I'm gonna go back to chapter eight, where it says that the priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Do you know that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he got two stone tablets, right? The 10 commandments, he got something else. You got blueprints. <laughs> Came down to the roll of blueprints for the tabernacle to make it according to the pattern of the reality that's in me, of what's real. Because every shadow is showing you that there's something real behind it. And then we looked last, a couple of weeks ago, um, when we were looking in chapter 9, how Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not what Solomon built or what, you know you know, other temples and, you know, were made from, uh, which are copies of the true things. But Jesus entered into heaven itself. And remember, we were talking about if, if somebody gave you a photocopy of, you know, Van Gogh's Starry Night, that's, that's not worth anything. That goes in the recycle bin. But if somebody gave you Starry Night, the original painting, that would be priceless. And so that's what Jesus is. He's the priceless reality. He's the substance that all of the old testament forms and functions were just copies and shadows of including the sacrifices and the offerings right that's what that's what verses two and three are telling us Um, if if the if the the copies if the shadows were, were the substance they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices Instead, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, right? So if you went 2,000 years ago to the temple, what would have immediately impressed you in addition to how big the building is and the priesthood and all that stuff, what would have immediately impressed you is there's a lot of animals here. Am I at the temple or am I at the zoo, right? I mean, there's lambs and there's goats and there's bulls and there's birds, and these animals and their carcasses, by the way, because they're being sacrificed, are all over, and they're, they're annual reminders at every um, every feast, every uh, um, annual feast, and they're daily reminders through the burnt offerings and the guilt offerings and you know all the different sacrifices that are made at the temple. They are reminders, very very tangible, very very simultaneously the reality of of God's provision of of salvation. They're they're a reminder of sin, but they're also a reminder of salvation. You you could not go into that place and come away thinking my faith is just sort of something spiritual and ethereal and very personal. Now you would immediately understand that if you're going to relate to God according to his prescription, it, it is something that happens communally and it's tangible and it's physical in addition to spiritual. It involves me, my sin, and a mediator, somebody to take away my sin. And that is something that's happening, not just spiritually, but practically and physically and tangibly. So I loved how C.S. Lewis wrote in Reflections on the Psalms, he said, we should not have really enjoyed too much the ancient rituals. Sure, there would have been like the smell of a good barbecue, but also this, the smell of blood, just unrelenting blood. Every temple in the world, the elegant Parthenon at Athens and the holy temple at Jerusalem was a sacred slaughterhouse, a reminder of sin, annual reminders, daily reminders. But we don't have to travel back in time 2,000 years to get annual reminders of sins. It happens at the beginning of every summer, right? Isn't Memorial Day an annual reminder of like our inability as great people to get along? Whatever leads to war, it can't be good. And, you know, war results in a lot of people dying. And that's what we honor at Memorial Day, those who made a sacrifice to defend us. And then there's all kinds of other like annual reminders. Maybe it's a the death of a loved one, that you, you remember them. The day that you know, he or she passed away, and, it, and it's a day of grief and loss. And don't we know that death is an intruder because sin came into the world, and, and death is the, the penalty for sin? Some of you have annual reminders of a betrayal. Some of you, these are not strange to us. We still have annual reminders of sin, and we have daily reminders of sin. I mean, I, I, hope, I hope, your, hope your daily news screen, uh, scroll, you know, your news feed is a daily reminder enough that I don't have to argue this point too much, right? But, but just for fun, like don't we have daily reminders of, of how broken this world is and how prone to entropy and decay because everything seems to need repair, everything needs to be fixed. And, and just on your kitchen counter, there's that nasty banana that you've been meaning to throw away is a daily reminder of just decay. And that disgusting tomato in the back of your refrigerator you just found the other day, like, oh, my gosh. We're, we're just surrounded by decay. And decay came into the world because of sin. There are, there are, there's, there's good anger that you and I feel because we see people treated unjustly. We see things that aren't fair. And those are daily reminders of sin. There's... <laughs> There's self-loathing, hopefully not on a daily basis, but you know what I mean, when we overeat or overdrink or we spend too much and we just go, ah, oh, I did it again. There's, there's that cold coldness, you know, between spouses, between parents and kids, frequently enough, right? Just remind us of sin, you know, we're stuck again, right? We have reminders, all around us, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that I fall short, that you fall short, that we fall short. And so if you had gone to the temple 2,000 years ago, you would have seen these reminders of sin in the form of blood sacrifices, but maybe we don't have blood sacrifices around us all the time, but we certainly have sacrifices. Things that people have paid, blood that they've spilled as a result of our sins, our forgetfulness, our words, our neglect, our actions, our tempers, you know, you name it. And these are reminders all the time. So look, you know, we have blood, the blood of bulls and goats in verse four, reminding us that it's impossible for these reminders to take away sins. They're just the shadow of, of a price that's paid, a, a necessary uh, atonement that has to be made in order to cover our sin. But the, that's a shadow. And this right? Shadows are the ways that we today, you know, again, 2,000 years later, we're still trying to, to take away our sins in different ways that are only shadows. We come in here, we come into the, the sanctuary, we even call it, you know, this holy place, and we sing, right? We, but, but yet it's impossible for the sound of our, of our praise and worship to take away sins. We even give gifts, But did you know that it's impossible for our tithes and offerings to take away sins? Those are just some of the, like, quote, religious things that we do. It's impossible for your prayers and good works to take away sins. But then just in a broader sense, like, when we try to be just good people, right? It's impossible for for the, the pace of our productivity, all the all the things you're trying to accomplish, it's impossible for the pace of your productivity to take away our sins. It's impossible for good intentions to take away sins. It's impossible for the the beauty, for the blood of our costliest sacrifice. The highest hill you can climb, uh, the, the deepest valley that you can plumb, It's impossible for those things, those man-made things, to take away our sins. One of the the unforeseen consequences of living in a global village, where everybody's connected, where, where we have these things on and out all the time. If you were here for our vision meeting, Kyle was talking about fasting from social media during this sabbatical. It was great. We could take a page from that. Because what we're doing with these things is killing us. As, as helpful as it is to have a news feed, and as helpful as it is to know what Aunt Sally did with her cat, you know, uh, in that video the other week, as fun as that is, it's killing us. Because the more and more things we post, the more and more images we're uploading, the more and more we're connected to all these people, it's up to more and more. liking or snarking, we're opening ourselves up to more and more judgment. More and more criticism. Do you think this might contribute in a little way to why our younger generations are struggling so much with anxiety and depression? Because of the unrelenting way that we're inviting the whole world to judge us. What if every post, every picture, everything you ever did, what if the only thing that ever came back to you was praise? What if everybody online, every time you did anything, any comment, any picture, what if the only thing you ever received was unmitigated, Love and, and approval. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, what if every, all 7 billion people in the world, what if all of them got online at once and just blew up your device saying how amazing you are and how accepted you are and how beautiful everything you do is? What if, what if, the, what if the universe could, could hum in harmony a song of praise for how beautiful you are, how good you are? What if, what if the maker of the universe declared the goodness that he finds in you? Isn't that what we're sort of longing for, that, that approval, that acceptance, that, 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 that blessing when, you know, every time you're sending something out there, like we, we, we know, though, that, that that can't be true. That can't be possible. Because of what our universe, if he's true, is that then we look the other way. Um, just the, the ways that we, we, we fudge things and we, we're not consistent. We know that the, the true God, the, the, the sinless God, cannot unmitigatedly say, well done to us. We know that our sin is real. We know that that our failures are real, and they affect real people. They have real consequences. And we're not only experiencing the brokenness of this world, but we're contributing to it. But thankfully, those things are not the only real things. Because the other real thing that we know from the gospel is that Jesus is real. That God's mercy is real and he came to us and he took on a real body. Like Jesus is not a legend. Jesus is not a myth. He's not an idea. He came in our flesh. He came as a human being, God incarnate, and he was real, as real as our body. As real as the sinful things that we do with our bodies. He took on a body and is just as real. And that's what's so beautiful about what Psalm 40 is telling us, here, that's quoted here. In verse 5, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. If you jump down to verse 10, it says that by that will, when when." Jesus is using Psalm 40 in the first person. I've come to do your will. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I cannot overemphasize how important this truth is. That Jesus, through the offering of his body, has made us perfect before the Father. Like it took his body. That's what he did when he came to do the Father's will is he was, he was bringing his body forward as it's not a shadow. So think of the various ways uh, that different cultures and religions and people groups all f- throughout the world and all, all over the, you know, throughout time have formulated and thought about God's revelation and salvation. All these different ways, like, right, so, so some cultures have really focused on God's revelation in the form of rules to obey, you know, commandments that, that, that the deity or the deities give to the people, and that's his revelation, and the way to salvation is you obey those commands. And then you've got other traditions and other, you know, religions, and they're emphasizing, well, you know, maybe there's some commands too, but, but really there's propositions. And, and there's um, theological points that the deity wants us to, to nail and to get home in our hearts. And so the way to understand revelation and salvation is by getting, you know, orthodoxy nailed down. And then there's other traditions, and they're focusing on wisdom. You know, God wants us to be wise, and he wants us to live these good lives, and that's the way to salvation. That's his revelation to us. And other, other traditions, other, other, you know, a whole different lens too, just mysticism and experience and feeling God and experiencing his presence and so on. These were all the different ways throughout time and, and people groups where people are trying to understand God's revelation and the and way to salvation. And then along comes Jesus. So what Christianity affirms is that yes, of course, God has given us rules and and he wants us to live consistently with his kingdom, of course. And yes, there's truths about what's real and about God and about creation that he wants us to to receive and comprehend and that's how we get on board with what reality is. And there's wisdom and how to live well with one another, how to do relationships, that's all well and good. And there's even the experience of God's presence through his spirit that he wants us to have. But none of those things, none of those things alone are the sufficiency of his revelation. They are certainly not the sufficiency of his salvation, either alone or even in combination with everything else. When God wanted to reveal his fullness to us, who is God in all of his fullness and and, and the salvation that he's provided, he gave us Jesus. Again, not just as a a mythological figure or just as sort of uh, an idea, but as a person in a body. Look at your hands and your arms and your legs, and as real as your body is to you, Jesus is real. He is our flesh in heaven. He is the substance of the shadow. The good things that were to come is found in Christ in his being with us. He came to do God's will. That was his promise. He used his body uh, to accomplish God's eternal plan, to offer himself as a sacrifice that would redeem us. His death would redeem us. His death would also Guarantee our inheritance. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember? Like, in order for for our, our debt of sin to be forgiven, Jesus died to pay the price of our redemption. And in order for us to receive the inheritance of Christ's riches, of righteousness, you know, you don't get the inheritance until that relative dies. That's the significance of his death, that's the significance of him giving his body away on the cross. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, just to kind of give some more context. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. Hebrews was telling us, quoting Psalm 40, Jesus is using his body and he's come to do God's will, to redeem us. And Paul is saying that's exactly what happened. We got redemption through the body, through the blood of Jesus, who came according to the mystery of God's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And then you jump down to Ephesians 1, verse 11, and it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I've come to do your will. Jesus did the will of the Father. He accomplished that plan and that purpose to be our redemptive price to pay for our sins and to enact this this will so to speak to give us an inheritance of Christ's righteous riches this is reality this this was what Jesus's body accomplished for us it's not just an idea it's not just theology it's not just doctrine it's not just proposition it's the reality as real as our bodies is because it's as real as Jesus' body is. So this, this is, you know, we struggle sometimes to believe the gospel is real. It just sort of wanders off into the ether and we go about our, our day and our week and we kind of go through the motions. But look, as, as real as our bodies are, that's, his, that's how real Jesus is. That's what he's accomplished for us. And he came to do the will of the Father with his body as an expression of God's purpose his design from from the foundation of the world to be merciful to us to save us to give us an inheritance and you know it's no accident that as god's image bearers we too have bodies and just as sure as jesus came and said i i've come to do your will with with my body we we who are on the receiving end of god's grace and have put our faith in Jesus, who redeems us, who gives us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. If you know, and that means we get to use our bodies to glorify God and to live consistently in His kingdom, just like Jesus did, to bless people. Um, bodies. I, I love uh, this quote. It's, I'm a little ambivalent. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm conflicted about this quote because it's so good uh, when the author wrote this, but sadly, I don't think she believes this anymore. I think she's kind of wandered from the truth of the gospel, but when Lauren Winter wrote her book, Real Sex, about 15 years ago, this is what she said about the significance of our bodies. The significance of our bodies. She says that bodies are central to the Christian story. The kingdom of God is transmitted through Jesus' body, and is sustained in Christ's body, the church. So through the bodily suffering of Christ on the cross and the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, we are saved. Bodies are not just mirrors in which we see the consequences of the fall. They are also, in one theologian's phrase, where God has chosen to find us in our fallenness. We all sin with our bodies. And Jesus found us in our fallenness By taking on a body himself, right? Bodies are who we are and where we live. They are not just things God created us with, but the means of knowing him and abiding with him. So how do we use our bodies to know him better, to abide with him? We present our bodies, as Paul says in Romans 12, as living sacrifices. We We come before him when we say, here's my body, Lord, I've come to do your will. Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, right? We want to do God's will through our body. You know, um, there's that point in the wedding, right, where the bride and the groom, they exchange rings. And they put the, the symbol of the promise on their bodies. They use their fingers to affirm this promise. It's a, well, it's quite a promise when you pause and you think about it. It's a promise a lot of you have made in this room, where you promise, I don't want anything to happen to come between us. I'd rather die than let anything disrupt this union. Right? It's a life or death promise, which, which is why when the husband and wife come together to consummate that promise, they, they do it with the vulnerability and intimacy of their naked bodies. And this is why God blesses married sex right because there's no higher promise than a man and a woman can make it's a lifelong covenant that they make with one another and that's why it in the most intimate way their bodies affirm the the highest promise that two human beings can make to one another that's why God blesses married sex it's also why God does not bless unmarried sex it's why unmarried sex is even dangerous and of all people to quote, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to quote a Tom Cruise movie <laughs> where in this movie, Vanilla Sky, um, you know, he has a relationship with this woman and he breaks it off and she can't handle it. And she comes hard after him, charging after him. She corners him and she says to his character, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? we're embodied souls and what we do with our bodies tells the whole world about the reality of the one who made our bodies what he's like can he be trusted or not is he faithful is he kind is he good we raise our hand to swear an oath right put our hand over our heart to pledge allegiance to the flag we we shake hands to seal a deal making promises with our bodies? What promises are we making with our eyes and things that we're looking at? What promises are we making with our ears, what we're choosing to listen to and to ignore? What are, what are we saying with our words, with our mouths, with our tongues? How does that reflect the reality and the goodness of God? are we bringing our bodies before Him to do His will? How about your hands? How about your feet? Are our bodies being used to bless the bodies that are around us? because those bodies have souls in them. And those souls need to know their creator, their redeemer, the one who gave himself, who laid down his body, because he loves us. Our bodies can show people the source of the shadow, the reality. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we give you thanks for the reality of the gospel, that you uh, were not content to just send us laws, you were not content to just send us doctrines, you were not content just to, to give us wisdom and to, to give us uh, experiences, but you gave us Jesus, you, you gave us yourself in a body. Uh, to convince us that this is real and that he is the reality and the substance of all of the the promises and the good things that we're being pointed to. Uh, We praise you and thank you for the redemption that is ours, the inheritance that is ours, More, more than that, the God who is ours. That you would make a promise with your body to be our God, that we would be your people. Or would you help us to make promises with our body to show people the goodness of God, the one who loves us and who gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.